your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. And if you can, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. And we stand, we stand because when God's speaking, it is as if God is here with us. His Word is an extension of God Himself. When you go to a court, when the judge shows up, Everybody's called to do what? Rise. And we rise also when God speaks to us because He shows up in His Word. So Revelation chapter 12, let's read verses 1 through 6. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male son, a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. You may be seated. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing to the Lord. Amen. Amen. What does come into your mind when you hear the word Christmas? What are some of the things that pop into your mind as you think about Christmas, Christmas season, Christmas day? For many, we have pictures of serenity, tranquility, joy, peace, Christmas carols, Christmas tree, yummy food, family traditions. Sometimes it's shepherds and sheep. And some of these images are all biblical and good. Not all of them, of course, but many of them are biblical. But the Bible also shows us some pictures about Christmas that we often don't think and reflect very often. Maybe because it's too gruesome for our delicate minds and eyes. One of the images that we see throughout the scriptures is the birth of Christ being pictured as a gruesome war where we see the baby boy in a manger as a violent warrior who came to crush the serpent's skull, ready to slay a filthy and vile dragon, and ready to rule the world with a rod iron. And today, that's the picture I want us to behold of Christmas, a picture that we often do not think or reflect very often, and that is of that baby boy crushing a cruel and massive red dragon, who had seven heads. The picture of a warrior, male baby, crushing an evil serpent dragon reminds us that Christ's advent, the Christ's coming, Christmas, was nothing less than a strategic, decisive, military movement in the raging cosmic battle between the Lord and darkness. And to understand this picture of a warrior 
a king crushing a dragon, we need to understand the main theme of the Bible. What is the Bible all about? The Bible, the main story of the Bible is very simple. God dwelling with his people. The Bible begins with God creating a people for himself. And the Bible ends how? With God and his people in a covenantal, gracious relationship. So you know the story of the Bible. And in between that is how to recover what was lost. So Morales, Michael Morales, he says, Life with God in the house of God. This was the original goal of creation of the cosmos. And which then becomes the goal of redemption. The new creation. And you think about the glorious fellowship between Adam and Eve and God in the Garden of Eden. The marvelous relationship suddenly is broken in Genesis 3. The love that a, a son and a daughter owed their parents. The love that the son Adam was owing the father. And the loyalty that, uh, that a vice regent owes to the main king that was broken in Genesis 3. Adam was supposed to conquer the serpent, the dragon in Eden. He was supposed as a priest to keep the garden clean. And he failed. Instead of conquering the dragon and the serpent, he's conquered by the serpent. And the greatest tragedy in Eden after the fall is what? Exile. They depart from God's presence. That's what death is. That's why everybody's born dead in their sins. They're in exile from God because of Adam. That's the greatest tragedy. Away from God's gracious, loving, merciful, joyful presence. And you think as the Lord is bringing the covenantal curses that they all deserve, the serpent, Satan, the man, the woman, suddenly in His grace He brings a very gracious and merciful promise. As He's bringing the curses upon the serpent, here we hear the first time the gospel. And He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, the seed, masculine, singular. He, the seed, he, the male son, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel or his ankle. By speaking of the seed crushing the serpent's head, the Lord is saying that the seed will do what Adam failed to do, and that was to keep the garden clean, to be faithful to God. And this second Adam, this second Son will come. He will undo what happened with the first Adam. He will rule in a better way than Adam did. And he will be a better priest. But look at that dimension. Look at what the serpent will do. And you, referring to the serpent, shall do what? Shall bruise his heel. What happens when you are beaten by a venous, venomous poison snake. Depending the type, you will die. And that's the picture here. The seed will conquer, but he will conquer through death. So from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22, that's the story of the Bible, we behold the drama of God opening the way for his people to dwell with him for all eternity through the work of the Son, the Messiah who will come and undo the fall. So Revelation 12, as you look in your Bibles, look at Revelation 12, in verses 1 through 6, 
You have the whole story of the Bible in six verses. You have this fascinating story of uh, kind of disturbing of a woman giving birth. A nasty, evil dragon. And then a baby who rules the world. Emerson writes, Matthew Emerson, he says, The war between the lamb and the dragon is the story of scripture. And John, the Apostle John, seeks to summarize, symbolize, and demonstrate the culmination of, of that narrative in the book of Revelation. And who knows, the next Christmas ornament that you will acquire will be a dead snake, a dead dragon, and you can hang there <laughs> as a picture of what Christmas is all about. So here's the outline where we are heading this morning. First, I just have some introductory observations about Revelation. And then we're going to look at the woman, then the dragon, and then the baby and the woman. So just some introductory observations. Uh, the book of Revelation is often something scary for many people. Uncharted territory. People avoid the book of Revelation. Others go to the book of Revelation just to abuse. So I think... It's important for me to be honest with you and tell my presuppositions as we come to Revelation. Because everybody's bringing presuppositions to the book. The question is, are we going to be honest to tell what presuppositions we are bringing to the book? And I believe that the opening sentence in Revelation 1.1 and 1 and 2 is key to understand the book. And it says, the revelation or the apocalypsis. That's the Greek word. The apocalypsis of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And you see the word revelation there, apocalypsis? That's the Greek word just for the unveiling. It's as if there was a veil holding, and now this veil is open, and you can see what is behind the veil. That's the picture of this word, apocalypsis. And what is, what is this book showing? Is the apocalypsis of who? Jesus. So this whole book is about Christ comes from Christ and it's about Christ. That's what this book is all about. John the author shows through this book how Jesus by his coming, his birth, his resurrection has become the king of kings and lord of lords. The resurrected and ascended Jesus reigns over all the people, places, demons and time. That's what he's showing us through the book of Revelation. So Revelation presents the ending of God's great story in a colorful language and powerful imageries. The main, the main idea of the book, as you're studying this book, the main idea is clear. God wins. God comes to live and dwell with His people. Revelation offers the hope and heavenly perspective necessary for the church to live faithfully in this fallen world. So the purpose of this book is not to satisfy carnal curiosity about ending in, in time prophecies. That's not the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book is to encourage the church to persevere under persecution because Jesus is reigning. Keep that in mind when you read this book. So first of all, it's about Christ. Second, as we come to this book, I believe that John is using recapitulation. I don't believe that Revelation is a chronology of future events in one straight line where you come to chapter 1 and you come to chapter 22 and there is, 
the whole story in one straight line. No, I believe John is the last prophet, the last inspired prophet, and he's using the prophetic way of recapitulating things, speaking of the same thing in different angles. Like when you're watching football, sometimes you see replays from different angles and you get a different perspective. And that's exactly what is taking place in Revelation. Think about the prophetic writings. You read the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Habakkuk, and you see that they're repeating the same messages, right? Say, I, I, I heard that before. Once again, oracles about Babylon. Once again, oracles about Egypt. Once again, oracles about Tyre. Why? Because we need to hear again from a different angle things. And that's what happens with the prophets, and that's what's happening with John, who is the last prophet here. But there is, of course, he's recapitulating and bringing to a combination with chapters 21 and 22. And that's important because Revelation 12 is, a recapitul is recapitulated in Revelation 20. And you know that by how John is structured, chapter 12 and chapter 20. You have the repetition of the same words, the dragon, the serpent, Satan, the devil, the deceiver, the testimony, souls, Satan conquered, Satan bound, church protected, church protected. Jesus conquers Satan, Jesus conquers Satan. Gospel goes to the nations, and Satan tries to destroy the church. So he's recapitulating the same story from a different angle, so he can have a different picture of the victory of Christ, the persecution of the church. So, with this in mind, also the place of revelation in the book of, of Revelation. Revelation 12 stands right, as you think about the, the structure of the book, chapters 1 through 22, chapter 12 stands right in the center of the book. I believe that the heart of Revelation, you think about the heart of the, of the book, chapters 4 and 5 where John sees who is on the throne. That's the heart, and that's pumping for all the rest. But the literary structure, as you think, chapter 12 stands right in the center. And it's crucial because it shows why the church is facing spiritual hostility in this world if Jesus has conquered. So, at the center of the book, John explains why God's people face tribulation and hostility in this world. It all relates to the larger cosmic conflict between God and Satan. Knowing the real reason for persecution, along with the certainty of God's future victory, encourages believers to persevere to the end. And you see in, in Revelation chapter 12 that the dragon is furious. Why? Why is the dragon so angry? Because he knows that his time is short. And he failed. He failed conquering the king. So he goes to attack the king's people. Another thing that I believe is important as you're reading Revelation is to understand the use of the Old Testament. The use of the Old Testament. Think about that. John is the last prophet. He's the last writer of the canon of scriptures. He's not creating something new. He's building up in the whole entire revelation of God. You cannot come to revelation if you do not have a good grasp of the whole Bible. That's why I have not preached through revelation yet. And my plan is only after I preach through Genesis, at least Genesis, 
We need to understand the scriptures to understand Revelation. John is not coming up with something new. I like what Peter Lyhart says. He says, Revelation alludes to or echoes to virtually every book of the Old Testament. It's the New Testament's OTist, the most Old Testament book. To be sure, there are very few direct quotations in Revelation. Then he says, John does not use the Old Testament expositionally, but compositionally. He writes with scriptures rather than about it. And then he says, John paints the apocalypse, and I think that's beautiful. John paints the apocalypse, and the Old Testament is what? His palette. And he's not alone. James Hamilton says, John writes as the last prophet who is consciously taking up all the threads of prophecy that precede him and tying everything together. So why is it important? Why am I spending time telling you about the importance of the Old Testament? Because when you come to chapter 12, you're going to see that it's not creepy. It's not something that you cannot understand. It's all there in the Scriptures. If you have eyes, you see it's all in the Old Testament. The sun, the moon, the stars, all in Genesis. A sign from heaven, birth of Emmanuel, Isaiah. A woman as a symbol of God's people. All there in the Old Testament. Birth pains resulting in salvation. All there in the Old Testament. A woman struggles with the serpent. Genesis chapter 3. Struggle between the male seed and the serpent. Genesis 3.15. The male seed. The importance of the male seed. The dragon. A picture of Egypt. And Satan tries to kill the seed. We can see that in Exodus chapter 2. The sea monster with ten horns. Daniel chapter 7. Leviathan, the sea dragon with many heads, Psalms 74, and you see that also in Revelation. So when reading Revelation, don't, don't, don't try to find the newspaper and the news to interpret. Stop with that. Go to the Old Testament and see how John is using that. So another important text is Psalm 2. So you think about Revelation 11 and 12, and you see how Psalm 2 is being used by John. So in Psalm 2, the nations are in uproar. We see that the nations in rage in Revelation 11, 18. talks about God's wrath. God's wrath in Psalm 2. Revelation 11, heavenly temple open. Psalm 2, Zion, the holy temple, is open for the Messiah to come. Revelation 12, 5, the birth of the Son. Psalm 2, 7, the begotten Son. Chapter 12, 5, the King is installed in heaven. Chapter 2 of Psalm, verse 6, kings is told in Zion. Revelation 12, 5, the shepherd, he shepherded the nations with a rod. The same thing in Psalm 2, he shepherded the nations with a rod. So, brothers and sisters, do you see, if we take the time to go back to the Old Testament, all the creepiness, obscurity, fear, looking to Russia, looking to the Middle East, that falls apart because it's all here. And the last aspect, I wanna, the last presupposition and the last thing that I want us to think about is just the structure of Revelation 12. And that will help you, I hope. So in Revelation 12, you have verses 1 through 4. That's before Christ. That's God's people before the coming of the Messiah. 
In verse 5, we have the coming of Christ, His death, His resurrection, and His exaltation. And then in verse 6, we have the history of God's people under the new covenant after Christ came. And then what verses 7 through, two, through 17 is going to do is just to tell the same story from different angles. Then from verse 7 through 12, it's the angle in heaven. What happened in heaven as Jesus ascended and conquered the serpent? And then verses 13 through 17 is what happens on earth as Jesus conquered the dragon. So, you guys can go home. And of course, not right after home, but later today at night, you can read this chapter and, and, and make sure that the things I'm saying is true. Okay? So let's go. Let's go to the text. Let's go to Revelation chapter 12. Let's walk through these six verses. And it says in verse 1, A great sign appeared in heaven. And you know that the ancient people, every time they saw a great sign in heaven, there was ex expectation of something great happening. Especially kings being born, they would see stars. That's why the Magi come, because they saw a star, a sign in heaven. So, the original audience is ex waiting here. Okay, John tells us what this great sign is. Who is the king who is to come? And the word sign is important. Why is it important? Because he's helping us to understand that we are not going to interpret this woman as a literal woman. You don't come to this text looking for a real physical woman who is dressed with the sun and the moon is under her feet. It's symbolic. It's a sign. It's a symbol that John is presenting. So there is truth behind, underneath, and to where this symbol is pointing. And remember, John is a big fan of signs. This word semeion. He's a big fan of signs. In John chapter 20, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written, written in this book. But these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So the purpose of this story with these signs is not to entertain our curiosity, but to strengthen our faith. Point to Christ that He's reigning. And the sign, where is the sign? In heaven. And the heavens declare what? The glory of God. And the glory of God is being declared by this vision in heaven. So the question is, who is this woman? A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon, under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Who, who is this woman? Look at verse 17. Verse 17 will help us. John, John says who this woman is. In verse 17 says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and who hold to the testimony of Jesus. The woman and her seed are those who are faithful to the Lord, who keep His commandments. So, we can say that the woman is a symbol of God's covenant people, from whom and for whom the Messiah is born. The woman then refers to a people identified by their distinctive spirituality rather than ethnicity. That's not Israel according to the flesh, but it's Israel according to heaven. God's people. Jews and Gentiles together. That's who this woman is. Uh, Bio says, the woman is a picture 
of the faithful community which existed both before and after the coming of Christ. And one of the purposes of Revelation is to strengthen the church, to help the church. And here's a picture of the church. We also know that this beautiful woman is the opposite. She's the completely opposite of Jezebel in chapter 2. Do you remember Jezebel in chapter 2? And the Lord promised He's going to strike her and her seed. And here He actually promised to preserve this beautiful woman and her seed. And also she's the opposite of the great harlot in Revelation 17.3. And then you might ask, God's people as a woman? Yes. Throughout the Old and the New Testament, we see God's people pictured as a woman. One of the ways that the Bible describes the people of God is as a woman or a mother. God's covenant people are portrayed as God's bride in the Old and the New Testament. In the book of Isaiah, a woman often represents the picture of restored Israel. So, for example, in Isaiah 54, and Isaiah 54 comes after what? And what we have in Isaiah 53? Yes, the inauguration of the new covenant. And chapter 4, right after that, says, Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For your, then he continues, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. So we see in the Old Testament, even when God makes a covenant with Israel, he's portrayed as bringing Israel as his own bride, his woman. And in the New Testament, we see the same thing. Paul says that the church is what? Of Christ. The bride of Christ. Paul says in Galatians 4 that Jerusalem from above is our mother. John says that the elect lady in, in his epistles, the elect lady, the chosen lady, that's referring to the church. And then in Revelation 19 and 21, he speaks of God's people as the Lord's bride. Amen? So who is the woman? God's people, the church, God's people under the old covenant, the faithful people under the old and under the new covenant. And look at how she's dressed. She's glorious. Let me just go back here. Now you can look in verse 1. Look at verse 1. The woman was clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head he had a crown of 12 stars. Let me ask you, where do you find the sun, the moon, and the stars in the Old Testament? creation in Genesis and also in Genesis 37 Joseph has a dream he has two dreams and the second dream is do you remember what happens he sees the sun Jacob the moon his mom and the 11 stars bowing to him sun moon and stars reflecting the God's people God's people that's what John is picturing here Throughout Revelation, the number 12 symbolized the entirety of God's covenant people throughout the centuries. And this lady is beautiful. She's clothed with the sun. We heard that Jesus' face is radiant like the sun in chapter 1. So the church shines forth the light of Christ, who is the sun, because of our union with Jesus. The church, a lampstand, shines like the sun because of our communion with Christ. Her glory is the reflected glory of Christ. And look at her vestments. You have the sun, you have the moon, you have the stars. She's pictured as a royal priest. The priest's garments were a reflection of the heavens, just like the tabernacle. And this woman is a kingdom of priests. And she has a crown, a stephanos on her head, 
symbolizing her victory, and the saints share in Christ's kingship. So she's glorious, she's beautiful, despite the persecution and the affliction. God's people have always been beautiful because they are heavenly. They come from the heart of the King of Heaven. And in verse 2, look at verse 2, it says that she... And she was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. What's going on here? This woman is pregnant in agony, in pains, giving birth. What is that? Simply, as you read the Old Testament, God's people in birth pains was the suffering expecting the Messiah to come. The picture here is God's covenant community eager for the Messiah, the Christ, to come. The meaning of her anguish is that, her, is that the faithful Messianic community has been suffering as a prelude to the coming of the Messiah himself. And there are many texts. I just want to share one with you, and that's Micah. Let me see if I have Micah here. Yes, Micah chapter 5. And we know that that's a Messianic text. And it says in Micah chapter 5, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me the one who is to be what? Revelation 12, chapter 5, he rules the nations. The ruler in Israel, who's coming forth is from old, from ancient days, he's an eternal one. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. A better exodus will take place. And he shall stand, look at that, and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. So through many tribulations, the king must come. Through many tribulations, the king must be exalted. And through many tribulations, we must enter what? The kingdom of God. Amen? So John, you can picture John just as a well. He's just drawing out of the well of the Old Testament. All these things here. Well, there is one passage that's very important. And that's Genesis. Genesis. We see Genesis in Revelation 12. The use of the sun, the moon, the stars. We see Eve as a glorious woman before the fall. We see the serpent, the dragon. We see birth pains before the seed. And then we see the serpent hostile to the seed. Why is John doing that? He's showing that what's taking place is nothing new. It's nothing new. This battle here, the Christmas story, is grounded in the early chapters of Genesis. Dennis Johnson, he says, from the exile, from the expulsion, from Eden, God's people have been an expectant mother awaiting the birth of the seed who would champion their cause against, against Satan, the liar, the accuser, and the murderer. And as we look at God's people, the history of God's people, we see how much we have suffered, how much our forefathers suffered, waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And you think about all the women who could not give birth, all the barren women in the history of God's people. They struggle, the pain, and yet the Lord was merciful in showing that through many tribulations and pain, the king would come. Think about all the genealogies of the Old Testament. It sounds boring reading genealogy, right? 
But there is a reason why you have genealogies in the Old Testament. Do you know why? Because God had made a promise in Genesis 3 that the seed would come. And he was going to preserve the seed no matter how hard Satan would try to destroy the seed. And that's why you keep the genealogies tracing, tracing, tracing until you come to Matthew and Luke. And all those genealogies is taking us where? From Adam to Christ. And then you wonder why there is no more genealogies. Why don't we have genealogies anymore? Because it doesn't matter what's fulfilled in Christ. He is the Israel of God. The woman gave, gave birth to the male child. It's amazing how in Isaiah chapter 7 we hear of the Lord promising a sign as high as heaven. And the sign is Emmanuel coming. So in verses 1 through 2, we see God's covenantal faithful people ready to receive the Messiah. This woman, despite all the pain, suffering, persecution, from a heavenly perspective, she's beautiful and victorious. And that's how we're supposed to see the church, brothers and sisters. People always criticize the church. Always say negative things about the church. But the true church, the faithful church, is always beautiful, glorious, and victorious in Christ Jesus. Even the church in North Korea under persecution, the church in China, the church in Cuba, and in so many other places, and even in the U.S. The church, the faithful church is beautiful because she's heavenly. She belongs to Christ. So Christmas declares how much the triune God loves the church. We, we sing that beautiful hymn here, The Church is One Foundation. From heaven He came and sought her to be His holy bride. With His own blood He bought her and for her life He died. That's how we're supposed to see the church. Christmas reminds us of the preciousness of the local church. Now we have another character here, and we need to move fast because the time is flying, and we have a lot to cover. Look at the dragon, verses 3 through 4. Another sign appeared in heaven. Now it's not a great sign that appears, not a beautiful sign, but it's a great dragon. It's an ugly, big, gigantic dragon, the dracon. And who is the dragon? Look at verse 9. It explains to us the dragon was thrown down the ancient serpent, serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So we know that this dragon is whom? Satan. And throughout the Old Testament, dragon, uh, the, the imagery of dragon appears frequently, and it's often pictured with kingdoms, kingdoms that persecute God's people. They're pictured as a dragon, as a leviathan. And we know that behind all those Kingdoms, or better, inside those kingdoms, the, all those beasts, all those dragons, there's actually the main dragon, that's Satan himself. Satan is often pictured as a dragon when he's ready to devour, or he's pictured as a snake, as a serpent when he's ready to deceive. The dragon is described as great because of his great power and his strength. His color is red. Why is he red? Bloodshed, yes. He persecutes God's people. He loves death. Satan loves death. The Lord Jesus said that Satan was a murdering from the beginning. So the bloodshed, the red pictures the slaughter of Christians especially. And he has seven heads, ten horns. 
and seven diadems. And this is coming from Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, and Daniel chapter 7. I invite you to read that. It's a beautiful picture of the ascension of Christ, the resurrection of the Son of Man. And he takes the power from the beasts, the sea dragons. He takes, it belongs to him, but he lets them live for a while. The head is a symbol of authority, the horn is a symbol of power, and the crown is a picture of rule and victory. So the seven heads and the ten horns picture the completeness of oppressive power and its worldwide effect. That's why Satan is called the prince of the air, the prince, the king of this world. But actually he's a parody. He's a parody. He's a comedy. He tries to imitate the triune God. He's a counterfeit. Because in the book of Revelation, the first one to be described with horns, who is that? Jesus, in chapter 5. Because horns, you think about a ram, pictures, a, pictures power. And Jesus' picture is the power. The diadems belong to Jesus, who is the Lord of lords and kings of kings. So this Satan here, he tries to deceive people, pretending to be the Lord. And it says that his tail swept down a third of the, the stars of heaven, cast them down to earth. I don't have time to expand this, but I believe that John is deriving this from Daniel chapter 8. And in Daniel chapter 8, the stars are not heavenly beings, but it's a reference to the people of God. And because of our union with the heavenly temple, with the heavenly Lord, we are sometimes pictured as stars. And I think he's referring here to the symbolism of Satan attacking God's people, just like in Daniel chapter 8. Trampling. The power of the dragon is real, for with his tail he hurts others. Martin Luther says, craft, his, this dragon's craft and power are great and filled with what? Cruel hate. On earth there is no one who is equal to him. Amen? But at the same time, how much of the stars was he able to drag and hurt? A third. In Revelation, a third is always a picture of limitation, parameters. Satan can never have absolute power. It's always limited. So throughout Revelation, a third implies that God has been placing a limit. And then in verse 4 we read, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour her. And that we need to picture as a gruesome, nasty scene. This ugly dragon, red dragon, all his heads and mouths salivating, ready to eat an infant, a baby. That's the picture that we have here. Ugly. He knows that the woman bears the promised seed. He knows that the seed owns the future. So he's only plan is to try to devour that seed. And throughout the Old Testament, we see this battle between the seed of the woman and the dragon, the serpent, throughout the whole Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, we see dragon, sea monster, Leviathan, behemoth, another name, Rahab, not a prostitute who got saved, but Rahab is another name for a dragon, for Egypt. And they picture evil kingdoms used by Satan to persecute God's people. And it's all flowing from Genesis 3, where you have the seed of the serpent struggling, trying to kill the seed of the woman. So, for example, we see throughout the scriptures, the dra I would say the draconic serpent, because she's deceiving and at the same time devouring in the garden. 
brings death to Adam and Eve. As a serpent, he deceives Adam and Eve, and as a dragon, he devours and brings them death. The seed of the serpent, the dragon, Cain, put to death the seed of the woman, Abel. The serpentine Pharaoh, do you remember, the serp- do you remember what Pharaoh had over his head? What did he carry over his head? A snake, a cobra. And he's pictured as a dragon throughout the scriptures. He tries to kill the male seeds of Israel. The serpent used Saul to try to kill the Lord's anointed, David. Goliath, that giant snake and dragon, tries to kill David. Haman, an instrument of the dragon, tries to exterminate the Jewish people. Antioch's Epiphanes, a draconic ruler, shows his hate towards God's people, trying to eliminate them. When Jesus is born, Herod the dragon, he's called Herod the Great, right? But he's actually Herod the dragon. He's draconic. He wants to devour the seed. He tries to devour the male child by ordering the slaughter of all the male children in Bethlehem. In Luke chapter 4, we see the seed of the serpent trying to kill Jesus once again. So we see that this struggle between the dragon, the serpent, and the seed of the woman throughout the whole Bible. And especially as Jesus is about to come, Satan is working overtime to try to exterminate. Especially in the intertestamental period between the end of the Old Testament and the coming of the Christ. That's when he's in full force trying to kill the seed. And we know he was never able because look at verse 5. She gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God, to his throne. Look at that. With one sentence, John gives a snapshot of the entire life of Christ. In one short sentence, the whole entire life of Christ from his birth to his ascension. The she gave birth referred to God's people, implying the humanity, the incarnation of Christ. He came from a woman to become man. He came from the line of Judah. And then there is the emphasis on the male child or who yours are saying, the male son. Why the male son? Why an emphasis on male? Our culture is so against male and female. But wh- wh- why do we have this emphasis on the male son? Because Genesis chapter 3, he promised there was not a woman who was going to come. A man, a male seed would come to undo what Adam failed. We also know that Adam was called the son of God, according to Luke. We know that this title was passed to the nation of Israel who became God's son. And then this title also was passed to the Davidic king and the future and expectation of the son of God to come. So the emphasis on the male Seed is because God had promised a man to come and destroy a better Adam. And also, I don't have time here, but please write down Psalm chapter 2. Because as I showed earlier, this whole passage is being derived from Psalm chapter 2 also. And John says that he is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Isn't that beautiful? He is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And the Greek word here, John is borrowing from the... The, the Greek version of the Old Testament literally means to shepherd, poimino, and he will shepherd the nations with a rod of iron. And that reminds us of two great shepherds in the Old Testament. Moses was a shepherd. Remember, he was shepherding his father-in-law's flock when the Lord called him. And then he sh- he's the shepherd of Israel. He's leading Israel. And remember what happens to him? The dragon Pharaoh tries to kill him, tries to destroy him. 
And now we have a better Moses, a greater shepherd than Moses, who brings a better exodus. We have David, who is the most well-known shepherd in the Old Testament. Also threatened by his dragon snake-like warrior, Goliath. But David overcame Goliath, the giant. And here's Jesus, a greater and better David. And it says, look at the end of verse 5. But her child, remember the picture, the dragon is ready to eat the child. And look at verse 5. But her child was what? Caught up to God and to his throne. John moves from the birth to the ascension. And we know that the ascension took place because of his death. But he's just summarizing. I like what Meredith Klein says. He says, the baby king was born and caught to his throne. Her male child, a son of man figure, emerges from the ordeal triumphant, exalted to Harbagaddon, the mount of assembly, the mountain of God. The Harmageddon throne of God, destined to rule with an iron scepter over all nations. The dominion that Jesus refused to accept from the tempter, he receives as the reward for his obedience to the Father. Let me ask you, who is the only character raptured here in this scene? That's the same word for rapture. Jesus is the only one raptured to the throne. And he's raptured through much pain and suffering. After he goes through all the tribulations, he's raptured and taken to, to the throne. He was caught up only after suffering. So this baby grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. He marched to the cross. He was crucified on the third day. He was raised and later he ascended into heaven. Where he was crowned as king and given the rod to rule and shepherd the nations. That's not a future promise, brothers and sisters. Not according to the New Testament. According to the New Testament, Jesus is reigning. We don't need to wait for Him to come to reign. He is reigning. He is ruling. He was born to reign. He was born to conquer. He was born to ascend. And all this takes place through suffering. And look at verse 6. Verse 6, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she, will, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Who is this woman? God's covenant community, now after the coming and the ascension of Christ. So that's the new covenant community, the church, God's people. And the picture here is that the church is not in heaven. The church has not been raptured to heaven. The church is in the wilderness. The church is following the steps of her head who suffered. The image here is from the first exodus. Jesus, our greater Moses, accomplished a better exodus. In the first exodus, Moses delivered God's people from the rule of the dragon, Pharaoh. And then these people go to the wilderness in order to come to the promised land. With the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we go through a new exodus. Deliverance from the ultimate dragon and sin. And the same thing. Dragon conquer, exodus, wilderness, until the land of glory. We're not there yet. So the woman fled into the wilderness. The wilderness throughout the scriptures is always a picture of two things. It's a paradox. The wilderness is a paradox. Why? 
Because in the wilderness, God's people are suffering. There's persecution in the wilderness. Tribulation. And at the same time, there is God's faithfulness, preserving, sustaining, guarding His people. The wilderness is a paradox. Persecution, suffering, tribulation. And at the same time, God's faithfulness, preserving His people. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. Topos, the Greek, throughout the New Testament, especially John, he often used this word topos for the sanctuary. And the picture is that there is an invisible sanctuary in the wilderness where God places His people. And then we hear about this 1,260 days. I believe, like all the other numbers in, in Revelation, there is much symbolism, symbolism behind that. Uh, 1,260 days is the same as three and a half years. is the same as 42 months. And you guys can do the calculation later. And it's the same as a time, times, and half time. And it's always a symbol of God's protection towards His people. So, Dennis Johnson says, the time period symbolizing 1,206 days encompasses the church's ongoing experience of suffering and safety, bold testimony and bitter trial, alienation in the desert but nourishment from God from the time of Jesus' ascension to heaven until the trauma that precedes His glorious return. Elijah, under persecution and suffering, was taken care of by God for three and a half years. Three and a half years is what Daniel says that God will preserve His people through tribulation. We think about Jesus' ministry, about three and a half years. Did he, was He spared suffering and persecution? No, but He was preserved by the Father. So that doesn't mean the removal from, from tribulation, but preservation in tribulation. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, of hell, will not what? prevail. Meaning, I'm building my church in the midst of hell itself. I'm not taking my church. I'm building my church in the midst of persecution. And they're going to follow me and be victorious in suffering, in persecution, in tribulation. And the protection is for the gospel to be proclaimed. That's the purpose. He protects His church so the gospel can be proclaimed. Why do we need protection? We know the rest of this chapter tells us because the Messiah conquered the dragon and the dragon knows that his time is short and he's furious. And since he cannot attack the Messiah himself who is seated on the throne, he attacks whom? His people, the woman. So he's furious. He knows that his time is short. It's like an animal who has been hurt and he knows that he's going to die. You don't want to come close to the animal. He's going to attack you. He's angry. That's why the picture of the V-Day, do you remember? D-Day, it's so important. There is the inaugurated victory. But let me tell you, even though Hitler and his troops knew that the, the loss was certainty, they never stopped attacking until the last time when they were exterminated. So look at the church from the ascension of Christ, from His coming, His birth, His resurrection, His ascension. The church has been triumphant in the wilderness. The only reason, think about that, brothers and sisters, Jesus was in Israel, Palestine, 
2,000 years ago. And the dragon was conquered, was bound, so what? So the gospel could go to the nations. And the reason why you and me, you and me, I'm from Brazil, most of you from here, we have heard the gospel, is because he was chained. And he explains, so he cannot deceive the nations any longer. And that's why we heard the gospel. The dragon has been conquered, but he has not been exterminated. That's very important. There is a difference between exterminating someone and conquering someone. Victory. So, Christmas reminds us, Christmas reminds us that because of the birth of Christ, His resurrection, His ascension, the dragon no longer has dominion over us. Once we were children of this dragon, we are no longer children of Him. Christmas, the birth of Christ, explains why the church suffers and why the church will suffer. Because Christ has won. The male child was born and he was caught up. And he's seated. He conquered the dragon. And the dragon is furious. And since the dragon can no longer attack the Messiah, he attacks his people. The body they may kill, God's truth abides still. Satan will be allowed to kill the body, but not the soul. And the Lord prepares a table for us, even in the wilderness. And I want to remind you that Christmas is a time of war. Christmas is a time of war. The birth of Christ surely brings peace between His people and God. We have been reconciled through Jesus. We have peace with God. But peace with God means what? Enmity with the one who hates the Lord. Christmas speaks of a nasty dragon. We've got to be reminded that Christmas also declares that there is a nasty dragon. This dragon represents true darkness, the horror of bitter tragedy, violent loss, the face of unbounded evil, hate. The dragon is the monster who assaults life and order, assaults beauty and goodness, light and gladness, and the only way is to come under the domain of Christ. Amen. So, let us celebrate Christmas, Natal, Natal, the birth of Christ, knowing that a baby boy was born, and that was the birth of a, a dragon slayer baby, a baby who was born to destroy the serpent, the dragon, to crush the skull of the dragon with his heel. The dragon has been conquered. We are no longer under his kingship, his lordship. Once we were, we are no longer. And I finish with the words of Psalm 2 that John has been using here. And Psalm 2 finishes with the following words. Kiss the son. Who is the son? The male child, the male son. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Brothers and sisters, today is the day of mercy. He's ready to be kissed by you. His arms are open. 
is ready. Kiss the Son. Find refuge in Him. Otherwise, your ending is going to be just like the dragon's ending. And we know as you read Revelation, He's going to be cast into the lake of eternal destruction. No grace, no mercy, no kindness. Amen. Father, we come before You and we humble ourselves before Your mighty hand. Oh Lord, we pray that certainly there are things here that I said uh, some of these brothers and sisters disagree, but there is one thing that all Christians agree is that you are the king and the ruler, the only savior. And we pray that this truth would be implanted in our hearts. Help us to love Christ more. Help us to be mindful that Christmas proclaims the love of the savior to his people. Help us to always be mindful of what the church looks like because of the coming of Christ. This beautiful, conqueror, victorious woman. Lord, help us to be mindful this Christmas season that there is a war. Even though there is already victory and we are already in Christ more than conquerors, there is still a spiritual warfare. So help us to stand firm. Be our armor. And Lord, for those who do not know you, I pray that your Holy Spirit would draw them to Christ, that they would kiss the Son, that they would embrace the Son, because today is the day of salvation, and the Son is ready to kiss back and embrace back those who come to Him. There's so much darkness, so much evil, as the fruit of this dragon's fruit. is, And the only way is in you, Lord. So I pray that those who are being affected, suffering, that they would run to you. And you are shepherd who rules and shepherd the nations with a rod of iron. So please shepherd us, guide us, feed us for the glory of your name. Amen. Amen.